and welcome to the Simungo's podcast. This is episode 76. Today's topic is neutropenic fever and our speaker is Monica Wadana. Now she gave a wonderful talk on this subject which we're going to play for you now for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. And you can watch that lecture in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Monica joins me now in a call to give her top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. I hope you enjoy this episode. So hello, Monica, and welcome to the St. Mungo's podcast. Thank you so much. I'm actually very, very excited to be part of this. Well, thank you very much. Well, look, Monica, a great place to start would be just for our listeners' benefit. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of background to you? So where are you in the world and what is your professional background? Yeah, sure. So currently right now, I live in Houston, Texas. I am an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And within the department, I'm basically in charge of all of the educational endeavors. And we also run Besides residency rotations, we also have an Oncologic Emergency Medicine Fellowship that I also run here too. And interestingly, for those that don't know this centre, you are an exclusive emergency department that only looks after cancer patients. Now, they come with the array of emergency problems, but uh, it, that, I think it was the first in the world, am I right in saying that? And maybe one of the few still in the world. Yeah, that's exactly it. So um, it's really interesting because MD Anderson Cancer Center is, you know, a closed system, ideally, um, where we take care of the emergent needs of this cancer um, population, but we still are an emergency department. So although we don't see uh, trauma or, you know, strokes, we have a, in Houston, we basically have a five mile radius of um, just top hospitals. And so if there's a trauma, if there's a stroke, um, there's different centers. And so we're the cancer center. And so it's a little bit interesting where we could, and we are a regular emergency department, but ideally we definitely um, see cancer patients only. And then the the issues that, you know, cancer patients, family members and caregivers have while they're, you know, visiting with their loved ones in the hospital too, which are quite many. And your wonderful team have provided a series of talks for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine, and you have provided two fantastic ones. And we're going to play one of them now, actually, on neutropenic fever, which is a topic that is familiar to all of us. But uh, your talk is absolutely wonderful. So you very kindly uh, joined me here today, just before we play your wonderful talk, to give us your top five pearls of wisdom from a cancer perspective, but for emergency clinicians. So over to you, Monica. Thank you very much. Sure. I think, you know, emergency uh, medicine physicians and practitioners in general, when they see cancer, they kind of get scared. And the first pearl that I really want to give you is don't be, because we only see cancer patients and their multitude of symptoms. But as an emergency medicine or acute care trained practitioner, you can treat their most acute problems. And so, yes, they might have you know, an MI on top of having, you know, platelets of three, but treating the most, you know, the most important, the most pressing problem, whether it's a stroke, whether it's a heart attack, whether it's, you know, a bleeding complication, you have been trained for that. And so give yourself credit. That's number one, because a lot of times, um, you know, I, I hear people, they're like, oh, when it comes to cancer, I get really scared. Um, but that's the first thing. No, you have been trained to take care of acute complications. We're an emergency department just like any other. It's just the cancer patient popula population is a little bit different. That's my number one pearl. Number two is a little bit playing on number one. 
cancer patients are really tricky because if you take a look at how acute um, symptoms present for you know the most you know the most uh, severe complexities that you might see in the emergency department, whether it be you know pulmonary embolism, you know I, I keep on saying stroke, you know um, heart attacks, take that and dial it down multiple notches because cancer patients how they present it's very very subtle. Everyone in general at baseline is pretty frail. And so you have to be able to pick up on the subtleties because you're not going to get the pathognomonic, you know, total short of breath, total, you know, total like hypotension that marks a PE, but they can still have a saddle PE and they'll be talking to you. But if you miss it at that time, that can have multiple consequences. And so the subtlety is uh, what I want to press. And so the third is, you know, we practice an environment that's really fast paced. But sometimes with this cancer patient population, you want to take a step back and take some time because a lot of times you have to get your answers to questions um, either from family members or take a little bit more time to tease out what is chronic in terms of, you know, a patient might be having chronic fatigue versus what's what's different than what their chronic, you know, their chronic issue is. Because taking that time to kind of tease out what is new, what is old in someone that is chronically sick, it's not going to be sometimes five minutes. You might have to sit down and kind of get a sense of um, what that might be. But taking that extra time will totally help you out in the long run because you might not be, you know, going in circles. You might actually be getting to your diagnosis sooner. So that's, I think, number three. The fourth pearl, um, I would say, is you're going to have to think of yourself sometimes you know, people that go into emergency medicine, depending on where you are in the world, we went into emergency medicine because we liked the acuity, you know. Um, in other places in the world, emergency medicine practitioners come from internal medicine or family medicine. In the United States, you know, we we don't. And so we don't like to have problem lists two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, I want to work you up for what you're here for. You're here for your chest pain. Chest pain, okay, it's not an MI. Okay, leave. Next patient. With our cancer patients, I liken it sometimes to internal medicine on steroids because you work them up for one problem and then you're going to find three others. And those three other problems, you actually still have to work up and make sure that they are stable from that standpoint too. And so it it requires a little bit more thinking, um, but it's also really fun because, you know, sometimes, you know, there's different types of people. Some people love like, you know, the trauma codes and like the, like all of that. I think of, you know, working up cancer patients, it's almost like I'm, I'm kind of like a detective because you, you open one box or it's like Pandora's box. You look at one thing and then all of a sudden something else happens and you have to be very good at treating that as well. And you have to be even, I sometimes say the clinicians that work with me, my colleagues, they are very, very good clinically because you have to pick up on the subtleties, like I said before. And then once that box opens, you have to treat them all, you know, it's kind of like on steroids really quickly or else things can go bad. And so that's my fourth pearl. And then my fifth is really important as well. Um, we are so good at treating things now. We can treat everything, you know, really, you know, if someone isn't able to breathe, I can, you know, intubate them and hook them to machine. You know, I can do multiple things. There's ECMO machines. There's tons of stuff. But as 
As a physician taking care of a cancer patient, it's really important to understand what is in the best interest for the patient. And that might not be something that their oncologist has spoken to them about, and you're having a meeting with them for the first time or their family members, and you might be the one that's having these um, these end-of-life discussions, these goals care discussions. And so this pearl is, the the biggest thing is, you know, to do no harm. And so sometimes doing less is actually more for these patients. And there's an art to having the patient and their family members understand that. And one of the things that I really want to impress is take the time for those soft skills to really get good at that when you're with our cancer patient population, because sometimes we're the best at doing that because we see them at their most critical hour. And the way you present it will basically, it basically, you know, well, I, I would say it doesn't, you know, like color everything, but it'll set a really great tone in terms of what's going to be happening next. Because once patients come to the emergency department frequently, a lot of times they're they're declining, and you might not notice, but the the mortality still the the cancer treatments are getting better, but still there's a lot of mortality, and so your time with them might be the time that they're cognizant that you can actually have these discussions that'll color what's going to happen and um, improve their tra trajectory in terms of quality of life. So those are my five pearls. <laughs> Fantastic pearls. Thank you so much, Monica. Now we're going to jump into your talk. Hello, everyone. My name is Monica Watana, and in this lecture, we will be discussing neutropenic fever. I have no financial disclosures. And febrile neutropenia is the most common, serious, and common complication of cancer therapy. There's honestly a very high likelihood that you've seen these patients in your emergency department already. And so the goal of my lecture will be to cover five items so that you will feel more comfortable and feel more up-to-date on the management of these patients. So what we'll be covering is as follows. Key, to, uh, key definitions, a general approach to the febrile cancer patient, We'll be discussing empiric antibiotic choice in microbiology. We'll be discussing two risk stratification tools that you might use. And then I'll give you some disposition strategies depending on your practice environment. First, let's go over some definitions. To calculate the absolute neutrophil count or ANC, you multiply the total white blood cell count by the percentage of polymorphonuclear cells, or PMNs for short, and band neutrophils. In severe neutropenia, the ANC is less than 500 cells per microliter. And in profound neutropenia, the ANC is less than 100 cells per microliter. And now let's go over fever. The definition of fever is as follows. It's a single oral temperature of greater than or equal to 38.3 degrees Celsius or 101 degrees Fahrenheit, or a temperature of 30 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit sustained over a one hour period. And neutropenic fever occurs when a fever happens in a patient that is neutropenic. And neutropenic fever truly is an oncologic emergency. The incidence of febrile neutropenia varies between 10 and 50% in patients with solid tumors and is reportedly greater than or equal to 80% in liquid malignancies. Liquid means leukemia, myeloma, and lymphomas. And a documented infection is only found in approximately 30% of the cases. 
And when a documented infection is found, the majority of infections are bacterial, but viral and fungal etiologies are possible. However, like I said, it's a true oncologic emergency when patients have neutropenic fever because the mortality rate is so high. Approximately 70% rate is happening in untreated gram-negative bacteremia. Contrast that when you treat these patients rapidly with empiric antibiotic therapy, the mortality rate decreases to 4 to 20%. So let's talk about general approach to the febrile cancer patients. When they come to your emergency department, you're going to know to ask key questions in your history of present illness. I'll give you some physical exam pearls that'll also be helpful, and I'll also give you a guide to ordering labs and imaging next. Let's do a case. So this is the patient that you are seeing in your emergency department. It's a 48-year-old male who has acute myeloid leukemia as his cancer, and his treatment is cytarabine. HPI is really key in this patient population. It provides a wealth of information. You just need to know what to ask and how to ask the right questions. And so basically, this is a history of present illness that a resident would give to me. I work in a teaching hospital, and so we have a lot of trainees. It's not necessarily bad. I've gotten that he's a 48-year-old male. Like I said, he had AML, and he's on remission with cytarabine. He's presenting with fever and really has no symptoms. But something is missing. We can go deeper. And this is what I tell my trainees as well. There's five key questions to ask. So what type of treatment is the patient? And the key is, when was the last dose? For this patient, the patient was on cytarapine, and the last dose was eight days ago. When is really important because the white blood cell count will dip seven to 14 days after the last chemotherapy treatment. The second question will be important too, is if the patient has a history of previous infections so that you can target your empiric antibiotic treatment potentially. In this patient, there aren't any histories of previous infections. Third helpful question is, what were the last CBC counts? Many of these patients have frequent blood draws, and so they most likely will know what their counts are, or depending on where you practice, you can look at the previous labs in your system. And for this patient, these were the previous counts. The fourth question is, when was the fever measured and for how long? And this was the answer for the patient. So the fever actually started yesterday, but it persisted today, and that's why he came in. And the big question that is number five is, are there any other symptoms that you can think of? Sometimes just asking that question will be helpful to jog the patient's memory. In our case, the patient doesn't have any other symptoms that he can think of. So let's go on to the physical exam. They basically... A, a good physical exam can give you clues that the HPI may miss. And add that to labs and imaging, you get a really clear picture of what you potentially might be treating and how sick a patient might be. With the physical, with the physical exam, it's really important to understand that signs of infection may be very, very subtle. Uh, like I said before, uh, I teach at a teaching hospital, and so we have a lot of trainees. And when they give me a presentation, this is pretty standard in the clipboard. They give me a good neuro exam. They do a cardiovascular exam. They listen to the lungs patient. 
This patient had no symptoms. They palpate the abdomen. They listen to it. The patient had a very benign abdomen. And they look at what is available, the extremities. Um, the patients are usually clothed. And everything looks within normal limits. But when I say signs of infection may subtle, you really have to dig deeper. Things can be easily hidden. And so if a patient is clothed, you want to make sure that you see all of the skin. And so get the patient in the gown. Look at the teeth and oropharynx. Look at the anal area because cancer patients often have constipation and there may be signs of fissure or early erythema that they may not notice that could be indicative of early cellulitis or an early abscess too. Also look at all the insertion sites for catheters, strains, and tubes. Honestly, in this patient population, pain and tenderness may be the only indicators of an infection. And then laboratory workup. Depending on where you practice, this is the standard laboratory workup that I would recommend. A CDC with differential, chemistry panel, blood cultures, and a lactic acid. Ideally, though, you want to add a little bit more on. And these are as follows liver function tests, procalcitonin, and additional electrolytes, especially if patients are on chemotherapy, you might have to be replacing and treating other electrolyte abnormalities as well. It's really important to know, though, that an absence of typical lab findings does not exclude infection. And let's go into one lab a little bit more in detail. If you are able to get a procalcitonin, I strongly urge you to do so. A specific challenge within the cancer population is that inflammatory marker markers are often elevated at baseline, such as lactic acid, and that might be driven by tumors or mucositis or other issues. And so in the general population, serum lactic acid is oftentimes used as a marker to see how resuscitation in patients is going or to see how initially sick a patient might be when they present with fever. In our cancer population, it might not be as useful. But what procalcitonin has been shown to do in studies is that an elevation increases the likelihood that a fever is due to an infectious source. So here is a guideline of the levels. From one to five nanograms per milliliter, it's about a 44% sensitivity for bacteremia. But if the procalcitonin level is greater than five nanograms per milliliter, there is a 80 like an 83% chance that the elevation is due to sepsis. Also, procalcitonin has been shown to be a good adjunctive biomarker to identify patients who could be candidates for a shorter duration of inpatient antimicrobial therapy with IV. And so drawing this level early on in the emergency department will also help your colleagues upstairs when treating these patients when they're admitted. Now let's talk about imaging. What is the role of imaging for asymptomatic patients, especially if you're going to be giving them antibiotics anyways? Um, depending on your practice environment, you might be able to get a CT scan just as reg regularly possible as a chest x-ray. Would that be a better study to use? Here is some information. So a chest x-ray, to be honest, is only useful in low-risk patients who actually have respiratory signs and symptoms. Neutropenic fever patients with pneumonia, though, may still have minimal or no signs of the pneumonia on the chest x-ray findings. So it is something that you can use if it's the only imaging modality available in your patient if they have respiratory symptoms. But I would urge you to try getting a CT of the chest if possible, depending on where you practice. 
a CT of the chest in a patient with neutropenic fever, uh, even if they are asymptomatic, is really helpful in detecting abnormalities. Have a low threshold in using the CT scan. And it basically results in positive diagnosis of pneumonia five days earlier compared with a chest X-ray. Also consider extending to do a CT of the abdomen pelvis uh, with both threshold if your patient endorses diarrhea, vomiting, or other signs of abdominal symptoms, such as constipation. The big thing to know is even if the patient is asymptomatic, getting imaging is helpful, at least getting a chest X-ray, because the sites of infection that are most common will be within the blood or within the lungs or the urine. Now let's talk about microbiology. 20 years ago, bacteremia from gram-positive sources was more predominant, but now it's more reversing towards gram-negative and polymicrobial sources, depending on where you practice. And so this will guide your choice of empiric antibiotic treatment. Getting empiric antibiotics started early is your standard of care. Antibiotic administration within 60 minutes from time to triage has been shown in studies to improve morbidity and mortality. But the decision of which antibiotics or if you should add a combination is what I'm going to discuss next. Current studies are showing that monotherapy for empiric antibiotic treatment for neutropenic fever is associated with fewer adverse events and is just as efficacious when compared to combination therapy. So in the first box above, here are some examples, depending on where you practice and what's available to use as a empiric initiative for when these patients present to you in the emergency department. At MD Anderson, what we routinely give is cefepine two uh, grams IV Q8 hours, but here are some other options. In this box as well, of, um, of antibiotics. There are also, um, excuse me, there's also help for if your patient does have allergies to penicillin. So depending on where you practice, you might be able to give astrianam plus vancomycin, or you can do superfloxacin, excuse me, superfloxacin plus clindamycin. So when do you actually add an additional antibiotic to target gram-positive cocci like MRSA? So when you want to add vancomycin or any other antibiotic to target this specific group, here are some recommendations. If the patient is really sick, if there's hemodynamic instability, if your HPI or physical exam findings or lab imaging indicates that there might be a pneumonia present, if you suspect a central venous catheter-related infection, skin or soft tissue infection, or if you have a hemodynamically unstable patient with a history of known MRSA, VRE, or penicillin RSF trioxone resistant streptococci, add the vancomycin. But if this is not the patient that you have in front of you, you can go ahead and use that monotherapy. So this is one of the questions that I've included as part of the lecture. What is your antibiotic choice initially if you have a neutropenic fever patient that is basically asymptomatic and you haven't found a source of infection? And your choice is going to be B, cefepine, monotherapy. So let's move on. Risk. Are all patients with neutropenic fever high risk? Do we have to admit everyone to the hospital that presents to our emergency department with neutropenic fever? 
Well, it depends on where you practice. Here at MD Anderson, that isn't the case. And this is the reason why. There are risk stratification tools that help determine if a patient is high risk for morbidity and mortality from neutropenic fever. One of them is called the MASK tool, the Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer. And basically, you have a max score of 26 based on these factors, the burden of illness, if they have no or mild symptoms, if hypertension is present or not, if they have a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, if they have a solid tumor or fungal infections in the past, if they present signs of dehydration, uh, their burden of illness, if they have moderate symptoms, and if they're outpatient. And basically, you can calculate the score. If the score is higher than 21, they are low risk. And if it's less than 21, they are at high risk for being having severe side effects from having neutropenic fever. The second index is the CISNI index, the clinical index of the stable febrile neutropenia. And this score is zero to two. You can consider outpatient management with oral antibiotics. If it's greater than or equal to three, these patients need to be admitted. And this is the criteria as follows. So their ECOG performance status, if they have signs of hyperglycemia, if they have history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, history of chronic cardiovascular disease, if they have mucositis, and uh, what their monocyte count is. So how does this help us in the emergency department? Unfortunately, both of these tools have not been validated within the emergency department, and they were studied in patients that were outpatient. And so it doesn't translate directly into our patient population when they present to the emergency department. But this study done by my colleagues here at MD Anderson and other studies suggests that what you can do is use the CISNI score that's more specific when identifying low-risk patients. Or you can also combine the MASK score followed by the CISNI score to help you identify who is truly low risk within the emergency department. Unfortunately, there isn't an emergency department specific tool, but that can be a guideline to use too with the two tools that are already available. And so the big thing is who gets to go home? The patient that I presented earlier, if you have a liquid tumor like a leukemia lymphoma or myeloma presenting with neutropenic fever, at our institution at MD Anderson, they get a meet they get admitted immediately for IV antibiotic treatment for at least 24 to 40 hours. But when it comes to solid tumors, the disposition strategy is not always an admission. And so what I've included is the MD Anderson guidelines that are found on the internet so that you can take a look at how we determine whether a patient can go home with neutropenic fever or if they have to stay. The criteria involves giving the mask risk index score calculation to the patient. And if it's greater than or equal to 21, there are other factors to consider. And if the patient meets this criteria, we actually send them home on oral antibiotics. Um, the first line for us is ciprofloxacin and Augmentin. And so certain criteria are as follows. Are they able to tolerate oral medication? Can they drink fluids? Make sure on your workup that there's no confirmed source of infection, such as the urine is negative, chest x-ray is negative. The patient also has to have a 24-hour caregiver, so they can't live at home. And they have to be able to come back to the hospital 
quickly. And so they have to live within one hour drive of our institution. And if these are the case, as well as a few of the other ones that I've, um, that are within the, um, within the box, if the patient meets these criteria, we actually send them home and they do very, very well. And so depending on where you practice, if the patient has good access to care, is able to follow up reliably, this patient population, if they have solid tumors, might actually be able to go home and not all patients need to be admitted to the hospital. And so that concludes my lecture. I hope you had a greater understanding of what febrile neutropenia is, how to work these patients up within the emergency department, how to treat them, and who will be more at risk to develop um, really severe um, side effects from neutropenic fever based on what I presented in this lecture. And if you have any questions, I've included my email address in the beginning of the lecture as well. Have a wonderful day. Okay, Monica, look, thank you very much. What a wonderful talk. Thank you so much for that. And obviously, people can uh, watch the video uh, on our special webpage and check out both your second talk and uh, many talks from a number of your colleagues uh, on continuous. So please do that. Monica, before we let you go, I always do one last thing, if that's okay, with all of my guests. I ask the same question, if that's okay. So if I could take you back on a time machine uh, to meet your junior self just starting your career, given all the experience that you've gained so far uh, in your career, what one piece of advice would you give them? This is such a good question. I would definitely give this to my junior self. I give this to myself now. And then I also mentor a lot of trainees. So I give this advice a lot, actually. And my thing would be, do not be afraid of messing up. You don't have to be perfect. You really don't. And I think it's really hard because, you know, a lot of times you feel like you have imposter syndrome because you have to, you know, I'm I'm a physician, you know, right after medical school, right after residency, I have this newly minted license and I need to know it all. No, you actually really don't. And you don't have to, you don't have to pretend that you don't either, but it's in the ability of, you know, saying, hey, I can mess up and what do I learn from these mistakes? That's where you actually will grow. And I think growth is the most important thing, even just, you know, outside of the clinical stage, you know, I'm in academic medicine. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have, you know, a, a trajectory of, you know, I'm going to make, you know, associate professor within this amount of time and this amount of time. Sometimes things go this way. Sometimes life happens and it's okay. It really, really is. And so it's not about perfection, but, you know, being happy where you are at because, a career in emergency medicine should hopefully, crossing fingers, last a lifetime, a lifetime of happiness, feeling fulfilled. And you want to be able to impart wisdom to your juniors. But if you never made a mistake, then there really isn't anything to impart, is there? <laughs> so I say, I say instead, of, um, don't, don't, don't need to feel like you have to be perfect, but be perfectly imperfect so that you can learn from the stakes and then also teach others. And so you know, with that, you can raise the bar. Perfectly imperfect. I love that. I think that's a great way to finish. Um, Monica, thank you very much for your time. Um, before you go, uh, anything you'd like to, to tell the listeners? Yeah, sure. So I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for taking time to actually, you know, learn more about cancer emergencies, because it's definitely a very wonderful patient population. And there's 
specific subtleties that make it a little bit different than regular emergency medicine. If you want to learn more, though, I uh, would just like to say we do have an oncologic emergency medicine fellowship. We take two fellows a year. And so uh, we take a look at the information. We have a website for that, number one. And then number two, we also have our own oncologic emergency medicine conference annually. And so I can link you uh, to the information there as well for the website. And we accept abstracts and everything too. Fantastic. Well, what we'll do is we'll put links to both of those things in the show notes. And one extra thing that we should mention is you've just completed a book, isn't that right? The Pocket Guide to Oncologic Emergencies, is that right? And that's going to be coming out when in a couple of months' time, is that right? Yeah, it'll, be, it'll probably be um, out within um, around, I would say, uh, the summer. And so, yeah, look out for it. It's, it's going to be, you know, it, it'll be able to be fitting, fitting in your pocket. And uh, it should definitely be helpful clinically because it'll give you bullet points and very, you know, concise information on pretty much um, a lot of the main emergencies that we see daily at MDN. Fantastic. Well, look, we'll, again, we'll try and put that into the show notes as well. Monica, you're very, very kind. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So many, many thanks again to Monica for her wonderful pearls of wisdom and that wonderful talk. Remember, you can watch it in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash Zipmungos. And please feel free to share that information with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, please take care.